0: So we are talking about calling, and like all good Presbyterians, I want to let you know that I have a four-point sermon, and it's outlined there for you in your bulletin. So, So you know what's coming. We're going to work through 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24, and I'll be spending some time in the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 17, if you want to keep your Bibles handy for that As well, and we'll talk first about about the experience of calling in our personal lives and also in our culture that we think about it, and then the callings of God's people, which is above all a call to God Himself in faith, and then the subordinate callings to our places in life. And throughout, I'll be saying that even if you're in the calling God has for you, it may not feel right all the time. It may feel right sometimes and not so much at others. But the main idea is to live faithfully and wisely where God has placed us into the spots to which God has called us. So with that in mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, this is God's Word. Paul says, "...only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches." Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now I'm not going to dwell on this business of circumcision, uncircumcision. That was their way of talking about Jew and Gentile, their way of talking about ethnicity and family backgrounds. And what Paul's saying is, you know, if you're not Dutch, it's okay. And, you know, if you're not Presbyterian, it's okay. And if your father or mother was an alcoholic, God knew that, and you can still have a whole life. And if, you know, you're a survivor of of a divorce, you don't have to strive to undo that. God has called you. For the first person, who ever went to college from your family, for the first person in 20, 40, 60 years who didn't go to college, it's okay. What counts is following God's commandments. Stay in the path of life God has given you. That's what verse 17 and 20 are both saying. I'm going to keep reading. Now, he says, were you a bondservant, we would say today probably slave, when called. Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant or, as a bondservant or slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant or slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You notice that he says basically the same thing three times in verses 17 and 20 in 24. May God give us ears to hear that. Let's just pray for one moment. Heavenly Father, I do pray that in a a time when we seek our calling and our callings, um, that we would find the place you give us and be content and faithful in it. Lord, there are many voices in our culture that speak somewhat differently from the way your word does. May we hear from you and live faithfully before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly 20 years ago, two planes crashed into the towers of the World Trade Center, uh, leaving a trauma in our national psyche and years of war. What we might not remember is that after those terrible events, we interviewed the people we called the heroes of the day. Because, you know, when people were <coughs> in the thousands coming out of the World Trade Center, running down the steps, there were men, mostly men, a few women, in the hundreds, firefighters and rescue workers running upward and risking their lives and some of them gave their lives. And in the days afterward, there were many interviews of these rescue workers, and they always had the same theme, <clears throat> you are true American heroes, we, we've lost our sight of what a real heroes, you're a true hero. And again and again and again, they said, no, no, we're not heroes, we were, we were just doing our job. That's the way someone talks who's found their calling. And sometimes we have in our circles mothers who have twins or even triplets, and people admire them and help them, and they say, you're such a hero, and and the woman says, well, I mean, what do you think I was going to do, give one of the two up for adoption? This is God's call in my life. God gave me twins, and so I'm a mother of twins. That's also someone who knows they're called, maybe not to a task they anticipated. The church hasn't always helped us with calling, For well over a thousand years, the Catholic Church said that the only people who are really called are monks and nuns and priests and bishops and so forth. And other people do ordinary work, not evil work, but it's not noble like the work of a priest or a monk. Luther came around, and he was a priest and a monk, and he said, we've been getting it wrong all these years. He said, actually, a milkmaid milking her cows pleases God as much as the priest saying the Mass. What he meant was she's actually more pleasing, but he didn't want to be too bold at that moment. In a more bold mode, he said, actually, a, a soldier as he kills and stabs the enemy can please God as much as a milkmaid or as much as a priest. And so that's maybe a correction But then today we have our own problem. About 70 years ago, a man named Abraham Maslow propounded an idea that was labeling what was emerging in his day and has become the dominant thread in our culture. He said that once a person has food and clothing and shelter and love and acceptance and belonging, they then seek self-actualization and fulfillment achievement that matters to them. And that's the world we live in today. People are generally seeking actualization, self-actualization, and and a sense that I'm important, that my life counts, and they, they pursue that. And maybe they're often pursuing what's next and what's better, what's more noble. The church doesn't always help us. Even Protestant churches don't always get it right, there is still an idea in many Protestant minds that some calls are better than others. I don't know how many times I've talked to somebody in business or in finance who say, well, you know, what I do doesn't really matter. I just, I just count dollars. You, you are the holy one, to which I say thank you very much for recognizing that. <laughs> the truth of the matter is we have our hierarchies, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm mostly a professor, and so I'm not nearly as noble as Andrew or Addison, who you know, help people day by day in their sorrows. I, I speak and I move on. And if I say something that causes trouble in the church, I'm on the plane. They pick up the pieces. And so their calling is clearly superior to mine. I just hang around with books and ideas and they, they serve people. But if you hang around Christian circles enough, you know that actually missionaries are better than your pastors because they do all the same stuff in a foreign language. So that's obviously better, right? And at the pinnacle of Christian service is not just the missionary, but the missionary who works 800 miles up the Amazon and lives in a snake-infested tree hut with no electricity. Right? Anybody have that idea in your head? Probably some of us do. And so we have this idea that some callings are better than others, and some people are better than others, and it runs all through society. Really got my attention 20 years ago, 21 years ago, a presidential campaign, and there were a number of candidates, and, and they went through the ritual of disclosing their finances, and, and one of them was qu- quite successful. In fact, he earned about a million dollars, and there it was, everybody see, he earned a million dollars last year. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that he was one of those people that speaks about mercy and kindness a lot, and he earned a million dollars and gave away 625, which didn't seem very generous. And so people said to him, give an account for yourself. Why did you earn so much and give so little? And he answered, I have given my life to public service. What he seemed to mean is, I give my life, I give my whole life away all the time. Why should I need to give away any money? And that made me think, so what is his view of truck drivers and bakers and kindergarten teachers and garbage collectors. Because if all politicians and kindergarten teachers and garbage collectors and truck drivers disappeared the same day, who would we miss first? Right? Now, that's, a, that's an unfair question because, of course, we need politicians and anybody who's lived in a poorly governed land or state knows how much we need good politicians, but we also need good kindergarten teachers and good bakers and good truck drivers and, and, and good garbage collectors. We need, we need them all. And, and so we stand with this idea that we have to resist the concept that some calls are more noble than others, and, you know, on the last day, we're all going to stand before the Lord, and we who believe in Him Will say, Thank you, Lord, for your grace for redeeming me, but will also give an account of our lives. And, And God, in various ways, in the Bible says, will ask us to render account for everything we did and everything we said. And He may ask us questions like this. And if you're thinking about your calling in life, these are a quick series of questions. You might write them down if you're seeking. So, question number one is, He'll ask us, did you honor me by honing and using the gifts that I gave you? By, by gift, I mean something you don't seek. So I have an internal clock, and if I want to take a five-minute nap, all I have to do is tell myself to take a five-minute nap, and I will make, I'll wake up after four minutes and 55 seconds. I didn't earn that. I don't deserve it. It's just there, like some of you have red hair or are left-handed, right? It's just a gift. That's not a, it's not an important gift. But did you hone the skills I gave you? That's question number one. Do you you honor your parents, your teachers, your mentors who poured their life into yours? That's the second question. A third question would be, have you used the abilities I gave you to provide for your family and for your neighbors? Did you answer the prayers of God's people is another way to say the same thing. Those are the questions God is going to ask And if you're pulling back and evaluating and saying, "Hmm, I wonder where I I stand, if you pull back and evaluate your life, what a lot of people realize is that a substantial portion of their life's work, their calling, their labors, are pretty unpleasant. I talked to a man in this church between services who's a detective. Now, you know, some people think that's got to be the most glamorous job on the earth, you know, finding and catching miscreants and, locking them away for their crimes. But he said, "Um, a lot of my work is almost pure nonsense. In every job, we have a garbage detail. Everybody takes out the garbage. And if you focus on that, you can think to yourself, well, what I really need to do is find a new job and escape the position I'm in. At worst, everybody wants something different. Married people wish they were single again. Single people wish they were married, the college president wants to be a professor again, and there are 27 professors who think they should be the president, and everybody's unhappy with what they are. So to get our bearings, the first thing we probably need to say is the primary calling God has for everybody here is to belong to Jesus. Now, I know that we're talking about calling this weekend, meaning your life's work, your energy's Monday to Friday, but If you study the Bible, and maybe Andrew has preached this, maybe you've used these exact words, and he's nodding his head that he has. So theologians, trying to follow the Bible, say there's a general call and then a specific call. So the general call that all Christians have, that all people have, is the call to belong to Christ. When Paul speaks in his sort of foundational theological treatise, the book of Romans, one of the first things he says is, I'm writing to you Romans who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says, just a moment later, you are loved by God and called to be saints. That Saints means people consecrated to God. You're loved and called to be consecrated to God. Called to be saints. You're called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? That you should be conformed to the image of his son. So everybody here, your first calling is to become as much like Jesus as you possibly can by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And as that call goes out to you, Paul says, again, in various places, as this call goes to you, you need to answer the call. He says in one place, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So God calls you, and you call back. He says, I'm calling you to myself. And, and, and Paul says, now you lay hold of that and make a good confession. That's the main calling God has in all your life. There is a second calling, and that's the call to a place in life, and that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. And the passage as a whole is largely about marriage and singleness, and then here it's about our place in life and, and contentment there. Paul actually begins with marriage. And I don't know your marital conditions. I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of you have wonderful marriages, and some of you... Or maybe people who are on your second marriage and maybe you're, you're divorced. And, and so Paul speaks to people who are having a divorce, a marriage problem. I, sorry, I said divorce problem, I meant a marriage problem. The marriage problem is this. Corinth was a completely pagan and godless city. One of the most immoral cities in the ancient world, nothing known of Christ until Paul got there, and he preached the gospel. He preached for 18 months, and a lot of people converted. And sometimes, praise God, a husband and wife would convert, but a lot of times a husband would convert and a wife would not, and vice versa. So we have a marriage in which you have a believer and an unbeliever, and 1 Corinthians asks questions. And one of the questions is, what do I do if I'm a Christian and my spouse is not? Should I divorce him or her? And Paul says, no, marriage is permanent. Remain in that marriage relationship. And I'm going to give you three words that he uses over and over. Stay unless because. Stay unless because. If you're married to a non-Christian, stay married because marriage is permanent. Unless, and then he says, unless your unbelieving partner is determined to leave. In which case, let them leave. Because... God has called us to peace. You hear it? Stay, stay married, unless your unbelieving partner leaves, let them leave, because God has called us to peace. That's the most basic word that God has for us where we're not quite sure we're in the right place. Stay unless because. Now, you may think, this is kind of strange counsel that Paul would just say, let them go. Today, in America, if you're married and you're, you want to stay married and your spouse wants to get a divorce, how much can you do about that? It's just very little. The law allows somebody to just leave. You can slow them down with legal maneuvers for a couple months. And, and in the ancient world, if somebody wanted to leave a marriage, there was essentially nothing you could do. In those days, you didn't get a divorce legally. You just walked away. No cell phones, no credit cards, no financial records. Most people never sent or received a letter of any kind in their life, most people couldn't even read. If you wanted to get out of a marriage, you just started walking. and walked for 10 or 15 miles and you were, you were divorced. And Paul says if that happens, tragic, let them go. God called you to peace. And he adds something very specific that's beneficial for people who are in, you know, in a burdensome situation, wondering what to do, what their, what their obligations are. He says... How do you know, this is verse 16, how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? What he's saying is, don't tell yourself if I'd just been a little bit better husband, a little bit better wife, if I'd just prayed a little bit more and and done a few more acts of kindness, my, my spouse would have stayed. Don't say that. Be the best husband, the best wife you can be, but you don't know. Oh, by the way, if your husband or wife is is staying, don't despair either, because how do you know, oh husband, whether you'll save your wife? How do you know, a oh, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Be faithful where you are to your marriage, and don't give yourself a burden you can't bear. That's what he's saying. He also says a little bit earlier about single people. He said, you're single? You Stay. You can serve the Lord. There's a crisis going on in Corinth at this time, and maybe it's best to be single in a time of crisis. So so stay single. Serve the Lord as a single person unless your sexual desires are unmanageable because God does not want us to burn with passion. Stay unless because. Similarly, if you don't like your ethnic situation, stay. Stay. Doesn't matter. Serve God where you are. Serve God in the array of social settings that God gives you. Don't think to yourself, if you're in a hard situation, the thing I need to do most is to flee, to get out of here. No, what you need to do is, is serve God there in whatever situation the Lord assigned. That's what verse 17 and verse 24 say. Now, this is tough. For I, I think this is an area. I, at least people told me this is an area of the country that's you know kind of socially aware, and and some people may think, well, wait, Paul said stay in slavery. Is Paul endorsing slavery? Is Paul indifferent to the terrible evil of slavery when he says stay? He's not indifferent. May I say he is a radical, not a revolutionary. He's not advocating a slave revolt. He's striking at the roots of slavery. That's what the word radical means, getting to the root of the matter. And the root of the matter is he's saying everybody is free in some ways and everybody is enslaved in some ways. All slaveries and all freedoms are proximate and partial. It's not that he doesn't care. He says, look, if you're a slave when you're called, stay, unless you can gain your freedom, in which case do so, because then you can serve Christ better. You may think to yourself, what does that mean? unless you can get out of your slavery. In the ancient world, probably a fifth of all the people, probably a fifth of all the people in Corinth were slaves. And slaves earned exactly the same wages as, as uh, non-slaves did. And so if you saved your money, you could buy your way out of slavery. And it seems like most people did by the age of 30. And so it's very practical advice. If you can gain your freedom, do so. And most of them probably could, and most of them probably did. But don't think to yourself, I'm a slave until the moment I buy myself out of freedom. If you are a slave, you are free in Christ. You can still serve Jesus. You can still serve your neighbors. And oh, by the way, if you're free, don't think to yourself, I've got no obligations. Everybody who's free is also a slave of Christ. Uh, Did you know that Paul calls himself a slave? Slave of Christ? Moses called himself or is called a slave, slave of God. David, in one place, is called a slave of God. Jesus is called a slave in one place, meaning totally devoted. So if you're free, don't think to yourself, I'm I'm free. Think to yourself, where do my obligations lie? And if you're a slave or feel enslaved by life circumstances, understand, please, that you are free in Christ. So Paul's not endorsing slavery. He's just saying, look, realistically, some people live in this difficult state. But the truth is, everybody does. And if I can talk about us right now, um, a lot of people have the idea that other people are free in their work. I made the mistake when I was, oh, I don't know, 30, of telling somebody who owned their own business, it must be fantastic to be your own boss, to be free of any oversight. And he laughed at me. He said, you don't, you don't really think I'm free, do you? I'm, I'm beholden to all the people who work for me. I'm beholden to the people who loaned money to help me start my business. I'm beholden to all my customers because my business isn't thriving and I can't afford to lose one. I'm not free. Nobody's free. If you're the assistant you think to yourself well you know i mean i'm i'm enthralled to my boss but the boss is enthralled to his boss and his boss to her boss and eventually to the ceo and they be thinking, the ceo's free no the ceo is not free the ceo has to answer to the board and the stockholders right and the student thinks to himself or herself i'm i'm a slave to my professor but the professor is a slave to the dean the dean is a slave to the provost the provost is beholden to the president the president is beholden to the board of governors and if it's a state school to all the voters right and if the students vote then in the end the president of school has to answer to the students everybody is free in some ways and and not free in other ways and so don't think to yourself i need to become free think to yourself how can i serve god where i am Now, of course, that's a little bit tricky because when I say I want to serve God where I am, you probably have American Western ideas banging around your head that you think are biblical because you've heard them so long and the Bible can kind of sound like secular ideas. Like, you know, we're supposed to be, don't, don't we think um, that you know, we should enjoy our work? Doesn't the Bible say that? Isn't there a place in the Bible where it says uh, for a worker to work all day and be tired and come home and eat a meal and have a good, there's, there's joy in that? Doesn't the Bible say that? The Bible does say that. And so there is, there is satisfaction in our work, and, and we should work cheerfully, the Bible says, right? But that doesn't mean that we always feel good about what we do. Because when we're in the right place, it may feel right or wrong. I, I, um, there's a Christian professor who teaches a class on work and calling and so forth. And, and he says that when he talks to his students, they have the idea that if they work hard and get the right internship and find the right mentors and suck up to the right people, they will get a good job, and they'll have a good life and a good career, and all will be well, and and the subcategory is, and you know, by the way, I don't want to get promoted too fast, because I want to keep my rock climbing and kayaking going. What I want is a job that calls for 42 hours a week, and I make $72,000 a year, and that's enough to buy the equipment I want to buy. And If I do everything right, that'll happen. I'll be, in other words, I'll be self-actualized. Again, the Bible does want us to be happy, but it's not quite that simple. So when I was talking first to one of my professors about what I thought might be my calling to be a professor, he said to me, and another student who had the same question, he said to me, Dan, I want you to know I teach for free. They, grade, they pay me to grade papers. And I would say, no, no, they pay me to grade bad papers because good papers are fun to grade. And, you know, when I go and speak places like here, you know, people sometimes say, well, what do we need to give you as an honorarium for speaking? I say, you don't pay me for speaking. You pay me for getting on an airplane and for sleeping in a strange hotel room. And, and then after I sleep in the strange hotel room, they say to me the next day, so how did you sleep last night? And I say, I slept like a baby. And they say, oh, good, I'm so glad to hear it. I say, no, I, I woke up and wept every two hours. Because it's noisy and it's hot and the sheets are scratching. I think somebody put goose feather pillows in the room and I'm allergic to goose feathers and my eyes are red. And that's that's what you pay me for. You pay me to take out the garbage. You pay me for the part that's miserable. And every job is like that. Every job has every calling in life has has things that are sweet and lovely and things that are hard. The Bible doesn't use this word, but there's a word I want to I use, and the word is ascriptivism, and it comes from ascribe. It means the idea that our places are ascribed to us. Now, if you overdo it, it becomes an ism, and you should just do what people want you to do. You know, if you're a woman, you should get married and have children, amen, amen. God bless it, amen. Just do what you're supposed to do. And if your dad was a carpenter, you're supposed to be a carpenter, and so on. So it can definitely become excessive. But it's also true that our place is largely ascribed to us by life circumstances. I don't know how many of you live in Grand Rapids because you love it, and how many of you are here and you wish you were elsewhere. Maybe you're here because you've got a relative who's really sick, and you're the one that takes care of them. Or maybe there's, maybe you know, you've got grandchildren who have special needs and you just decided to move here to help out. And you, you wouldn't have chosen it, but you live in the role, in the place of taking care of this need, you find yourself. That's the good side of ascriptivism. I'll say it personally again. I live in St. Louis, which is a nice city in certain ways and not a nice city in certain ways. If, you know, if, if, pe- if you ask people what they know about St. Louis and they're being nice, they'll say, oh, you know, the Arch and the Zoo and the Cardinals. And if they're, you know, if they have other ideas, they might think, you know, it's a city with racial strife and a lot of crime. And those statements are all true. They're all true. And the work I do in St. Louis sometimes fits me really well and sometimes doesn't fit me really well. And in recent years, I've been offered jobs in other cities several times. Jobs that looked really interesting 1,000 or 2,000 miles away. But in God's providence, all of my children live in St. Louis. Which means, much more importantly, all my grandchildren live in St. Louis. Which means I'm going to stay in St. Louis. And if my job doesn't fit me quite right, I have to find myself in a job that isn't quite right. And my first calling is not to switch jobs. Eight days ago, um, we were, my wife and I were watching our grandchildren sleepover, seven and four. And the four-year-old boy is, uh, is, a, is a light sleeper. That's the only word for it. And nobody ever told him this, but he kind of ferrets out who's, who will wake up if he stands by their bed long enough at four in the morning. And he knew it would be me, <clears throat> and he just stood there and looked at me for a while, and I woke up, and I looked at him, and he said, Papa, I need a hug. Now, nobody likes to be waking up at four in the morning, but if you're going to wake up at four in the morning, that's about as good as it gets. Do you, want, do you want me to hug you right here? Do you want to just climb in bed with me? Yeah, come, yeah, Papa. I'll just and, and then hug me again when you take me back to the bed. Okay, we'll do that. And I find myself in that, right? I find myself in the place God appoints. And our culture is always saying, self-development, follow your heart, follow your passion. I'm not against that. I'm not against your passion. The Bible says, if, if we... We can rejoice in our toil. And the Bible says if you're a leader, if you're called to lead, lead with zeal. Love your leadership. Don't resent it. Love it. And if, and if your gift is the gift of mercy, then show mercy gladly. If you're the kind of person that your eye recognizes all the people in your neighborhood who have a need and you just know who's, you know, who's broken a, a, a hand or, or who's been to the hospital or who's Achilles snapped, and, and you fall into the habit of preparing meals and bring them, bringing meals to people, delight in that. I'm not against delight. The Lord is in favor of delight. The Lord is against the idea that we always have to look for the next thing. Our culture tells us follow your heart, follow your passion. And then Christians hear oh, that's so individualistic and it's, it's so even narcissistic, and so we think we've got to correct that. And so, I don't know if you know this, but in Christian literature, there's this theme that says you can't just follow your internal call, what you want to do, you have to pay attention to your external call. Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Nobody's heard it. Okay, 11 people have heard it. Actually, you've all heard it, but you just don't remember it because Andrew said it three and a half years ago. So, internal call, external call means I want to be a ballerina, actually don't in case you're wondering, but I want to be a ballerina, but I'm not, nobody wants to offer me a job as a ballerina, so I should not be a ballerina or a, you know, baseball player or something. I should do something else. And Christians think that's better, and I guess it is. But do you notice that God gets left out of that? Internal call, external call? And so a man named John Frame says, Can we just reintroduce God to the picture? And here's how we do that we say, God gives gifts to humanity and to his people he locates them in places so they can discern their gifts because God puts mentors around them who care about them and watch them and see their gifts and God sovereignly gives us opportunities to use our gifts and he grants us wisdom so we can use our gifts in ways that glorify him that's putting God back into it so we dethrone self and we trust God to give gifts and show us how to use our gifts and that means again, to be very practical, um, that we can ask ourselves questions like, what do I think my gifts are and what desires do I have? Those are legitimate questions that we can use to reflect upon our life. We should also ask questions like, who do I serve? What people do I serve? Where do I serve them? Even if you're in a jazz band that's on the road 200 days a year, you've got a home base. And you've got people who depend upon you there. And then we can ask questions like, what need shall I meet? What deficit can I remedy? What burden shall I bear? How might I suffer even in a Christ-like way? This occurs, uh, you know, one by one, individualistically, and it also occurs on, in teams. Um, how many of you here know the name Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps, you know that name? How many know the name Jason Lezak? No hands, good. So Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. He won 28 medals, I think that's right. I have it in my notes somewhere. 23 gold, and above all, he won eight in one Olympic Series in one Olympics, he won eight. If you know anything about it, the year was 2008. If you if you have any picture in your mind, you have the picture actually, not of Michael Phelps in the water, but of Ma- Michael Phelps out of the water cheering for his teammate who was Jason Lezak, because it was the 4 by 100 freestyle, and that was Lee's, that was Phelps' worst race. He was the third or fourth best swimmer on the team, which meant he didn't swim the first or the last leg, the anchor. And they had to win the gold. They weren't supposed to win the gold. The French team was supposed to win the gold because they had the best times and then the fastest swimmer in the world named Elaine Bernard. And, and when Jason Lezak jumped into the water, Bernard, who was faster than Lezak, had a six-tenths of a second body length plus a tiny bit more lead. And he swam the first 50 meters and fell farther behind. And at the turn, in interviews later, he said that he was talking to himself and saying, this is the Olympics, you can't give up. Which I find amazing because he was thinking about quitting at the Olympics with like 20 seconds to go in the greatest race of all time. Because he didn't give up and he just kind of cut loose and he was swimming, he started gaining on Bernard. And Bernard heard the crowd screaming and understood what was happening because they were swimming near each other. They started to look, he got tight. He got over a little bit toward Lezak, you know, in the lane, which you're not supposed to do because then even in the water you can draft, and he kept catching up and catching up and catching up, and if you remember, they touched apparently simultaneously, and in fact, Lezak won by one one one-hundredth of a second, and and the gold medal was theirs. What I haven't told you yet is Lezak swam the fastest 100 meters of all time, in that race, no one had ever in human history gone faster than he did, but Lizak never won anything more than one bronze as an individual. He could only do his best when he was on a team. He would only do his best when he was swimming with his friends, and I want to to press this in upon you as we look for my call, my location. Think about the team, think about the people around you that God has put you with, and the truth is, most of us are team members. We're on Christ's team, we're on the team of the church, we're on the team of our family, we're in a, in a team of coworkers. This is where most of us find their callings. I'm going to say one more thing, and that is some of you are probably thinking, um, hey Dan or Dr. D, whatever you're thinking of, preacher person, um, you are talking about calling and I don't have one because I'm 77 years old or I'm 13 years old and I'm just a student, or I'm just a retired person. That's not true. The, the calling of a student is to learn, and to learn academically, but also to learn, you know, your way around life, to learn how to, to, how to work and how to be a friend. And, and if you're 77, you have callings. You, if you're married, you are still a husband, you're still a wife, and maybe you're a grandparent, and you're called to be the best grandparent you can be. And by the way, your adult kids, you're still their parent. And that's a calling, and and you're called to be a neighbor, and you're called to be a volunteer in your community. We all have callings, and they're largely given to us. They largely come our way, and we find our freedom there. We stay there, unless, of course, we stay unless, unless God makes it clear we should move on. We strive to find ourselves in the place God has given us. Now, where's the first place God has given us? Above all, he's given us a call to himself. And within that great and central call to be a disciple, to be more and more like Jesus, then we have other beautiful, lesser, important, changeable, but potent and blessed callings in our lives. Let's pray for a minute. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this church that's gathered here. I thank you that I get to see the signs of a community reforming and rebuilding in Sunday school and two services and and special events and for all these things we give you thanks and we ask you to build this community and help people find their callings one by one to you to tasks to relationships and to each other and we ask it in Jesus name amen